Welcome to the Banker Midweek, your weekly look at what the industry is talking about, offering information bankers like you need to know. Hello and welcome to this week's The Banker Midweek podcast. I'm Kimberly Longage, editor, and I'll be chairing this week's episode. I'm joined today by Sylvia Pavoni, founder and editor of Sustainable Views, a publication within the FT specialist group focusing on ESG. Sustainable Views also has its own podcast, which you can find through your usual podcast providers. Sylvia is also my former colleague at The Banker, where she worked as both Latin American editor and economics editor during her time at the magazine. So she's got plenty of experience and knowledge to be talking about the stories today. So first off, Sylvia, thanks for joining me. Pleasure. So on The Banker this week, we have a story from our reporter, Davide Montagne, on why cash is still important in the digital world. So... The story reports that on August 18th, the Treasury in the UK announced that high street banks were now obliged to offer cash withdrawal locations within a reasonable walking distance from both urban and rural centres. So the move followed the closure of thousands of bank branches in the past few years across the UK as more people opt to bank online. But it's prompted the government to ramp up efforts to safeguard vulnerable customers, including the elderly and people with disabilities. So, Sylvia, I thought I'd bring this one in because it kind of hits into that S part of the ESG story which we don't really talk about so much so are you kind of seeing things like this are you seeing that there is more awareness now of maybe having to bring in different alternatives to support people yeah it's an interesting point because the S in ESG so ESG as uh, many of the banker readers will know stands for environmental social and governance Mm -hmm. And those are the factors that are, in a way, reshaping really the definition of um, uh, risk, but also capital. And mm-hmm. so the ability of companies to raise, for example, capital uh, and the influence that these factors have on uh, those companies' banks and mm-hmm. also their investors. So the, the term is actually under fire on from, from all sorts. If you are in, in the States, mm-hmm. you know, that uh, there is a huge backlash against ESG because it's uh, from Republican uh, politicians mm. because uh, they uh, place it next to uh, so-called woke capitalism yeah. and so they say they should stay out of banking. Yeah, And the S in ESG is particularly difficult to pin down because um, w- while it is um, pretty hard really for people to deny climate change and mm. the implications, particularly in terms of risk, physical risk and other types of risks. The S component is, again, it's a little bit more difficult to quantify, mm-hmm. to measure, and therefore, because as we know that all economic and business activities tend to like to measure things before they act on them, uh, then things get a little bit tougher. But there is certainly a growing push towards financial inclusion. So the story that I mentioned, I would place it in that category mm. from not just international organizations, and you have the UN even looking at this, but you also have um, uh, monetary authorities and individual banks paying attention. So um, it's one of those things that whether we put it under the ESG umbrella or whether we put it just under being um, uh, an attentive um, economic agent, Mm. um, it is certainly of greater importance, um, particularly because even if the bank leadership doesn't perhaps pay too much attention to it, their customers increasingly will realize that it's something that they demand mm. um, from uh, from companies and mm. including banks. Yeah. And I, I mean, I for me, it kind of reminded me of there's a big thing in the UK at the moment around um, closing ticket offices and train stations. And there's a lot of pushback against that. You know, most people buy tickets online now, but then some people can't 
you know, and if you take that away, you're removing a resource that some people really do need. Of course, you but know, there is on you know on the flip side, there is a cost, right, attached mm, to it, and yeah. so you also, uh, I you know, we all I think un understand the the uh, the challenges of um, keeping those physical premises going, but then. Those examples, and you know, you mentioned the fact that I used to cover Latin America for the banker, mm. uh, and uh, there was a really interesting example in Chile of Santander. There, for example, re reusing retail space, or rather, using their branches as a sort of broader, broad concept retail space where mm. people could just come in, hang around, have coffee, and they were really keen to say that the coffee actually w was of good quality. Yeah. Use the internet, and also, by the way, there are a couple of you know people from the bank around if you need to whatever, if you want yeah. to open an account or uh, start a savings account, yeah. uh, withdraw some cash. Yeah. So perhaps there are new ways maybe of, of uh, interpreting commercial uh, premises that uh, the banks uh, lease or own. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's tough, particularly, particularly when uh, economic conditions are difficult mm -hmm. for everyone. Mm -hmm. Okay, so we'll move on to the next story now, which is TD Bank finds Gen Z engaged with their financial future. So this was an interview with Chris Yancey of TD Bank by Bill Lumley. So what we're looking at here is younger generations are taking a high level of interest in their financial future, according to the TD Bank survey. It revealed that when choosing a bank, some 20% of Gen Z, who are broadly those from 1995 to 2015, believe the offer of everyday financial advice, guidance and readiness classes to be more important, to be a more important consideration. So according to the survey, according by the Bank of America, 57% of Gen Z are saving money every month, which the bank noticed a significant difference compared with previous generations. And then a bit further down, the survey by US Online Student Financing Marketplace Lend EDU, in which 75% of Gen Z says there are concerns about taking on too much debt and 72% say that they are actively working to reduce their debt levels. And I've thought, you know, this kind of, again, fits into the the social side of things. But I thought, Sylvia, I'd throw this to you because I know you are the mother of a son who fits within Gen Z and we've had conversations about this in the office. So, you know, from that perspective, do you find that your son and his friends are more financially savvy? And maybe do they ask more questions than you would have done at the same age? Mm. So he's on the younger side of Gen Z. Mm. What I certainly notice is that because of his access to um, to devices, to digital devices, and therefore also to money through those devices, he has access to, um, he can transact uh, in a way that is far easier for him than it definitely was for me. Yeah. Uh, at the same time, he seems to be aware of when money comes from or the value of things, mm. but I suspect it's just because I keep on telling him yeah. <laughs> <laughs> about the importance of this. A and the reason why I I'm also so focused on this is because, you know, in turn, my parents were very much focused on you need to budget, you cannot overspend. Yeah. And all of that, and I was—you mentioned this story, and I was—and I was reflecting on this. And and you know, there is a great um, or great um, awareness about uh, the importance of financial uh, education and mm. financial literacy. A and the FT, of course, we should probably also mention, has um, has a charity that looks exactly at this, at improving financial literacy. So, anyone mm. uh, of your listeners interested, uh, the, the charity is called FT Flick, mm -hmm. uh, and they can find it. And there are really interesting resources there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So on the one hand, because of their access to digital information, that in theory, you know, the ones lucky enough to actually have uh, a mobile device with them and, and a parent willing to 
to share, to allow them to, mm. to use it to spend. Um, then in theory, they are more attuned uh, mm. to, to financial topics. Uh, on the flip side, though, um, the uh, understanding of currency and, and, and you know, as, a as a place where you store value mm. is also interesting because of uh, the way in which they transact, for example, uh, in different online places. I'm thinking mm. about video games. Mm. So there, there is, there is a, a sort of a monetary component, but then you also have, even forgetting about in-game purchases, mm. you have different ways you, through which your activity online gets rewarded and mm. you can spend it doing some other things. So that's actually quite interesting. And of course, I know that many banks are looking at, well, even beyond video games, the, me the metaverse and how you can get uh, newer consumers mm. because they doubt you and I, Kim, are going to transact on the metaverse <laughs> anytime soon. But younger consumers, how to, how to get them to, again, uh, digitally live there. Uh, and that also uh, obviously opens up the, the question around their understanding of how they're spending, what's behind those kinds mm. of metaverse transactions, mm. uh, but even more broadly, those online transactions. Yeah. Uh, so the answer is yes. Is, is I feel he's um, uh, rather aware uh, of money and, and what it means to get money mm. uh, and the value of things, but I'm not sure whether it's generational. Oh, think about okay. it just his mother yeah. <laughs> <laughs> really reminding him yeah this is what happens when you're the child of a financial journalist as these things are going to be passed on <laughs> it's someone who is fastidiously budgeting and has been doing so since, since ever exactly so, yeah. yeah i mean and i i from my perspective like i'm i'm you know i have some contact with older gen z but maybe not with the younger end of the spectrum um but I mean, I was taking part in an event last year in Bristol where I was invited to interview some Bank of England economists in front of a group of school students, which was a really interesting thing. And one thing they asked at the start was, who amongst you has invested in Bitcoin? And quite a few of them put their hand up and they said, who's actually made money from it? And none of them put their hand up. But I thought that was such an interesting experiment because that is where maybe there's some awareness coming in of finance and how to use your money and how to invest but it's kind of going down that avenue and maybe you know with the slight riskiness of cryptocurrencies I'm sure people will have different views but um maybe trying to steer them in another direction might be a good thing and you know from what this survey these surveys are saying is that actually maybe that is happening which is which is interesting and just before we move on to the next question the next um discussion point I was also on FT Flick as well the the charity you know they have a very active social media presence and I follow them on Instagram and they are always kind of doing those co-branded things with all these like financial literacy influencers like who knew that was a thing but it is and these people are giving out financial advice explaining things and there's things I've looked at and like I didn't really understand that before and now I do and I am very much not in the Gen Z bracket so it's it is interesting maybe how it is more accessible, this information now, than what it was previously, which maybe is what's helping younger people have a greater understanding of things. You know, just the fact that the information is out there and it's actually in the places where they go to anyway. Yeah. Like if you're already on Instagram or TikTok or whatever and the information is there, it's not a case of, oh, I have to deliberately go and look on a bank website to find out this information or something. So it's, it's maybe that's part of a shift. It's an interesting trend. Anyway, we will move on now. We will look away from the banker and look towards sustainable views. So I asked Sylvia 
to share some of the big news that they've been reporting on this week. So one thing she sent over was by Philippa Nuttall, which is ECB's Elderson urges banks to get up to speed with climate litigation. So the European Central Bank Supervisory Board Vice Chair says leaders and their clients need to implement credible Paris aligned transition plans to mitigate the, ri the rising risk of climate lawsuits. The worsening impacts of climate change will lead to increased litigation and banks and corporates must be prepared to be in the firing line, warned Frank Elderson, a member of the European Central Bank's executive board. Some Europeans faced hell this summer, Elderson says. The fire and floods seen in parts of Europe and countries around the world means the tragedy of the horizon is upon us. And, you know, we've got a couple of other stories here that you've shared. But I think just to start off with, like, what, you know, this is a really, this is quite strong language coming from the ECB. You know, what was your take on this, Sylvia? Right. So climate litigation is uh, a huge, huge headache. And any story that we publish on sustainable views around these subjects, just views spike. Uh, any panel discussion that I join or speeches that I make, when... We mentioned, when I mentioned climate litigation, everyone pays attention. Mm. It's a big problem. Um, and it comes from um, a number uh, of reasons. So um, in this case, we should probably start from, from Elderson um, and uh, obviously the banking space. In this case, what Elderson is, is pointing out is that while we started seeing some uh, climate lawsuits against governments. Mm. Uh, we are now seeing a trend of climate lawsuits against companies, against mm. corporates, uh, and I can share a few resources for anyone interested in actually looking at the numbers, a and they can be slightly scary. Um, but we are now seeing um, these kind of lawsuits against banks as well. So mm -hmm. there was a case uh, filed in a French court in February, uh, filed by three NGOs against BNP Paribas. Mm -hmm. And they used a French law called uh, duty of vigilance um, uh, law, which uh, essentially um, establishes responsibility for, for, uh, for companies, including financial companies, um, in, in, th in the way in which their activities have an impact on uh, uh, human rights, but also the environment. And the three NG NGOs were saying that BNP Paribas isn't doing enough to uh, stop financing fossil fuel companies. So now the company actually responded saying that uh, their uh, actions are pretty much on track to meet their targets um, and that by 2030, the bank will be left, uh, the loan book uh, financing fossil fuels will be left with just under one um, billion euros. Uh, if I uh, remember the number correctly, and I'm going to check it for you now. Um, Yes, 1 billion euros, yeah. under 1 billion euros um, by 2030. Mm. Uh, and this will be loans for fossil fuel companies. Mm -hmm. um, so these uh, kind of uh, lawsuits are on the back of legislation. Mm. And there is one in France. There is one a similar one in Germany, uh, ju which just came into effect this year. The mm. French one was from 2017. There is mm -hmm. a similar one in Norway from last year. The EU is also putting together actually legislation around companies' responsibility throughout supply chains, due mm -hmm. diligence, uh, the due diligence um, uh, legislation mm -hmm. directive. Uh, and uh, this really will uh, give some ammunition to, uh, uh, to anyone, to mm -hmm. stakeholders interested in actually holding these companies to account when it comes to these 
uh, to these factors. And, and so again, we are starting seeing cases against uh, banks, against mm. financial companies, not just corporates. More broadly, also, Alderson talked about greenwashing. Mm. So uh, as a bank, you may come under fire uh, and be brought to court because of your exposure uh, to fossil fuels through lending, through other activities, but also perhaps because of uh, what you say doesn't quite match what you do mm. in terms of um, environmental commitments, for example, or any other kind of um, ESG commitment. And we are seeing actually greenwashing cases also uh, come into court. So there was a really famous one in a Californian uh, uh, court uh, against Delta Airlines. Mm. And it was because, again, they were saying that their claims to become a net zero airline were overblown because the company was using, um, according to the claimants, um, uh, carbon credits that mm. weren't of good enough uh, quality, while mm. at the same time advertising widely, including apparently on, uh, on in-flight napkins about yeah. their uh, carbon neutrality. Yeah. So it's a big issue. The Grantham um, Research Institute for Climate Change and the Environment, which is part of the London School of Economics, uh, um, has a really interesting research, and which they keep updated every year, mm -hmm. on climate litigation. Uh, and the, the numbers have been growing. So mm. um, um, until uh, May this year, there were over 2,300 2, um, climate litigation cases around the world. And again, one of the trends is that uh, the number of uh, these cases against corporates is going up, as well mm. as the variety of uh, legal arguments, uh, mm. which is, which is uh, growing. Yeah, and I think one thing that I was thinking about with this is say, if a bank know this kind of thing is coming and, you know, if they haven't really been truthful or if just things have been historical, you know, how, how do they factor in this risk now? Is it seen as a compliance risk? Is it a regulatory risk? What category do you think it falls under? It is, again, it's an interesting question. So you would have the, the chief risk officers surely also considering very much regulation risk. Mm. Um, so regulatory action, which it could well be the ECB or another um, another uh, monetary authority from a different jurisdiction, mm -hmm. um, you know, acting on, for example, uh, their uh, their climate scenarios. Um, mm -hmm. uh, but uh, it is also a legal concern. It is also, again, as you mentioned, a due diligence uh, concern. So I would imagine that this um, is of interest to many uh, functions within a bank, and also should be of interest to the board mm -hmm. as well. Yeah. And I think, you know, we you also shared with me as well, there's a couple of examples already we've seen of cases already being brought. So there was one of the small island states um, case requesting for climate justice in Hamburg to determine what obligations of high emitting of high emitting countries to protect marine environments under international law. And this immediately made me think of it when I was at the ADB early this year and I met with um, Tuvalu's Minister of Finance, Sevi Painu, who spoke with me about... Um, kind of what their their goals were and their intentions were and how they are really at the bleeding edge of climate change. And he one of the points he made was every time you do something, every time you consume, every time you take a long haul flight, every time you do something that you know has an impact on the on the climate, think about what it's doing in real terms to Pacific Islands. You know, and I mean, do, what do you think around this kind of these cases? So this this can potentially be uh, a landmark case uh, in terms of climate justice, because, again, we um, keep on hearing more vocally, quite rightly, uh, that um, uh, you know, these countries that are at the very much at the forefront of the climate uh, crisis mm. uh, are suffering the most poor a situation that the heavens largely caused. Mm. And so there is um, uh, there are greater discussions in, in you know, international fora, uh, 
including at COP, the UN Climate uh, Change Conference, around uh, the uh, damage mm -hmm. caused by industrialized countries mm -hmm. uh, and what they can do to repair to mm -hmm. their contribution to from uh, so-called developed economies to what we would define as developing economies mm -hmm. to help them transition and, and also mitigate the effects of climate risk. Um, and so again, anything that ends up in court, I think, really focuses people's minds, mm -hmm. right, around, around these subjects, um, irrespective of how then the judgment actually uh, goes. Mm -hmm. And it is certainly interesting that it's become uh, a, a, an element of discussions that is um, uh, at these international debates and mm -hmm. uh, within uh, global policy making. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then there's also the example as well of the Africa Climate Summit recently reasserted calls for richer nations to bring bigger financial commitments forward for, for the green transition. Um, while Development Bank's, Bank's meeting at the Finance and Commons Summit asked for stronger mandates to help them support sustainable growth. So I think you have that kind of um, side of things with the Pacific Islands, but then if you look at like the the African Nation Summit side of thing, there is the need of support for not only the impact that it's having on the country, climate change is having on these countries, but also their need to they need to industrialize or they need to move up the chain in terms of having more green infrastructure, green yes. technology, and the responsibility to support them in that process as well is something that the developed nations need to take on so I, again like how how do you think that's progressing do you think that there is an, an understanding that there is some accountability needed from the developed world in helping I, I think you know in words there is then of course as we know the devil is in the details so mm. when it comes to to practice and actually uh, um, having those uh, funds um, reaching those projects in the countries uh, that need them is perhaps a different thing. But on the flip side, you know, every as we know, every challenge has an opportunity attached mm. to it. And so if we are looking about the, in theory, the, the great potential that these countries offer, so let's just focus on Africa, right? Mm -hmm. In terms of developing uh, the green uh, energy infrastructure and all of that, then you do want um, investors mm -hmm. involved, private capital involved, and there is a role to be played by the development banks. In fact, they are very much talking about it from mm -hmm. the World Bank to regional banks to even national banks. Mm. And so that's another really interesting area of discussion, one that I'm sure you know, lots of bankers actually would be attracted to. Yeah. Uh, and so there is a greater, uh, there are greater conversations around the blended finance and mm -hmm. blended finance solutions to, again, perhaps diminish risk, whether actual or perceived uh, risks associated to placing private capital um, next to these projects. Mm -hmm. And then you do have a number or private sector investors or even lenders or even uh, actually international companies interested in working um, uh, on these projects. So I mean, it, it's, it's a fascinating area. And of course, um, as you say, there is great awareness, which is good. They are um, good for everyone. On if, if we want to talk on the, you know, about the climate justice um, mm -hmm. elements, that's of course good, it's interesting, but, and interesting, but there is also a, a business element as well, which mm -hmm. makes the whole conversation uh, appealing, um, I think, to anyone, particularly yeah. to lenders. Yeah, yeah. And now just to move on to 
our final point, which is just to look a bit more broadly away from what we've been working on in our respective publications over the past week, um, just looking at the, what happened with the G20. Oh, so but we did look at the G20 as well, actually. Climate is everywhere, right? <laughs> so I was going to make that point, but, you know, we drew um, the truth to a close last week and there were questions around the lack of commitments to sustainable goals. So there was a lot of news about this out there, but there's one piece in particular I've drawn from this, which was by the FT's climate correspondent to track the Mooney. And I know, Sylvia, this was something that you covered in you had the newsletter about it earlier this week as well with sustainable views so um just to go from the ft piece the g20 leaders were missing in action on the most critical aspect of limiting climate change advocacy group said after the major economies failed to set a timeline for the end of fossil fuel use without the emissions captured the group of 20 countries which account for about 80 percent of global greenhouse gas emissions agreed on a goal of triple renewable energy capacity by 2030 globally taking their cue from the G7 earlier this year, but the leaders' declarations failed to include any reference to the phase-out of oil and gas, despite the burning of fossil fuels being the biggest contributor to human-induced global warming. They committed only to a phase-down of coal in line with national circumstances and avoided reference to phasing out or polluting fuels. So, what what is the climate community's take on this then, Sylvia? Right. Well, so uh, so the, all these big meetings end up with a declaration, and yeah. and this is what was missing in that declaration. So there wasn't any explicit reference to again, um, uh, you know, phasing out um, uh, fossil fuels. Mm. And as you've seen, as you, as you said, the phase down of coal was referenced, but again, there was the caveat that this was going to uh, be considered in line with the national circumstance. Mm. Um, and so lots of people were disappointed mm. um, by this. Uh, and there are, there are obviously more broadly concerns around the fact that even energy companies, uh, fossil fuel companies that um, uh, until now had been quite um, uh, vocal and mm. engaged um, in, in terms of their transition, thinking about BP, the transition mm. to... Uh, a greener, I guess, business model mm. uh, further down the line, then they kind of backtracked on that uh, and all of them are benefiting from the higher oil prices. Mm. Um, and so um, as we've seen, there were also a few criticisms around the language that the G20 mm -hmm. used in their declaration when it came to the war in Ukraine. Mm. So there wasn't an explicit um, reference to Russia. Mm. Um, and I'm mentioning this because after the, the war, the full-blown uh, invasion, uh, that's when prices really of uh, oil and gas started to uh, to shoot up, yeah. uh, which generated, of course, those uh, uh, record profits by, mm. by the oil companies. So it's complicated. Uh, yeah. It's complicated, but there is, again, there's been uh, huge criticism coming from uh, environmentalist groups, um, and uh, you always have, when these conversations happen, you always have the ones uh, also looking at uh, the benefits that greater investment in uh, clean technology, clean energy, but also mm. uh, uh, clean energy infrastructure would do both in terms of um, energy security and mm. in terms of prices. Mm -hmm. And so you have both of these conversations, kind of the criticism and also the, one, the more hopeful ones saying, well, this really should focus everyone's minds on pouring uh, pouring capital, pouring funds, including government funds, into those uh, clean energy solutions mm. and the clean energy infrastructure needed. Mm, yeah, I think that the thing that struck me really, I mean, this is just my perspective, is with the, the commitments and the phase down of coal in line with national circumstances. I mean, do you think that was maybe they were keeping in mind, like we touched on with the 
the, commit the statement from the Africa Climate Summit of some nations are still needing to use coal just of simply course. to get up to a standard. And maybe I was just wondering if that was um, them trying to temper the language to say, you know, we're not going to say we're going to completely ban fossil fuels outright because of the impact that that would have on some countries in terms of their industrialization. And also, you know, there's so much talk around like the just transition as well now, which brings that S aspect of ESG back in again about how you can't just abandon communities. So th th there's certainly a consideration mm -hmm. because as you say, certain countries are still um, relying on uh, high polluting fossil fuels, including mm -hmm. coal. Uh, and so uh, that would have an impact on their development. Mm -hmm. Yes, that's definitely a consideration. Mm -hmm. um, looking at it from, from a global perspective, I guess this, that particular sentence points to the difficulty in tackling this in, uh, in an effective but also in a just uh, way. Mm -hmm. And so again, we go back to the, the role that richer countries play in mm -hmm. addressing the issue. Mm -hmm. And I'm pretty sure these are the type of things that are going to come up at COP as well soon. Oh, so for sure. <laughs> There'll be plenty more conversations about this. But for now, thank you for joining me today, Sylvia, and for all your insights. Um, so remember, you can listen to other Banker podcasts on all your, all your normal Spotify, Acast, the Banker website providers. Um, and the most recent is Liz's podcast of Functional Banking Magic, which is discussing fintech onboarding. And next week's episode of the Banker Midweek will be coming live from Cybos with myself, Liz Lumley, and Joy McKnight sharing our thoughts from the conference. But until then, thank you for listening. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Banker Midweek, part of the portfolio of podcasts from the editorial team at The Banker, available on thebanker.com and wherever you get your podcast fix. Search on The Banker Podcasts to listen to more.